Thank you, Mez. Please be seated. Thank you, team. So as is obligatory at uh, these junctures, I should ask you how you're all going. How are you, church? It's a dumb question, isn't it? Because most of the time that we ask those questions in life, as we're going through our day-to-day and we're at a, at a supermarket or someone, says, someone asks you how you're going when they're, they're at the teller, and you'll say, okay, and you realise that they don't really care about how your actual day is going, and you don't really care about your response because the polite thing is to just ask and then say, yeah, well, I'm doing okay. And I have discovered over a period of time that particularly with the work that I do, we do a lot of very large project management, so hundreds of millions of dollars and big digging big holes and building big things and big cranes, things that can break. Invariably, on any given day, there's a whole variety of things that are going wrong. And so if you actually asked me truthfully, how are you going, I could sit there and say, well, here's all the things that could go cataclysmically wrong uh, in the work that we're doing right at the moment. And most people actually don't want to be burdened by that. And so I've developed over time an approach. And it's simply that when people ask me how I'm going, I say, I'm fantastic. Now, it confuses the heck out of most people when you say that because they genuinely don't expect it. And there's nothing like the stunned look of a checkout chick who's at the supermarket who's just sort of said, yeah, how are you? And you go, I'm fantastic. They assume that you're on drugs. <laughs> but, but when you say that, and I, I say it with great sincerity, the down, one of the great joys of being Australian is we know irony and sarcasm really well. So you can actually make fantastic, do a whole range of things. You can go, I'm fantastic. But I always try and say it with great sincerity. Because the reality is, is in my world, I've got a whole bunch of people who work for me and and my staff get very frustrated by me constantly saying how fantastic I am. But the reality is, is they, a whole bunch of staff, different project people who work for me, contractors, stakeholders, people who are actually paying us to do what we're doing. And so when I say to them, I'm fantastic, it's an assurance to them that notwithstanding what else is going on, it's okay. I've got hope. Because you've they need to believe that I believe it's going to be all okay. So my first fantastic is for them because they need to believe that it's all going to be all right. The second fantastic is for me because very often when I'm actually sort of dealing in the middle of of really complex stuff, getting the motivation and getting the enthusiasm to sort of stand back up and take another hit on whatever project you're dealing with or whatever the issue is can sometimes be challenging. So I have to carry a degree of hope about how it's going to turn out. So the second fantastic is for me. I I believe I'm fantastic because I need to believe I'm fantastic. The third fantastic is actually because it's true. Because I have the great joy and privilege, the the life that I have, the, the education that I've had, the upbringing that I've had, the world in which I live, the town in which I live, on balance... While there are always areas of my life where I could say, gee, things aren't the way as good as they could be, I genuinely have to say that on balance, I'm actually pretty fantastic compared to the misfortune that so many other people carry. So I will always, I I will try always, I can't guarantee that it'll always come out, but I as much as possible will tell you that I'm fantastic because you need to hear it, because I need to hear it, and because I'm fortunate enough to be in a very positive place. But 
within the context of the church when we talk to each other and when we welcome people in. And the church is home and the church is family. And so the expectation is that we'll be a little bit more open with each other about what's actually going on in our lives. But we have two general approaches. Now, these are great generalizations, but generalizations are my forte, so I'm going to use them right now. So there are two general approaches we have in a super spiritual church like ours. The first one is, you'll come and say, how are you going? And the response is, praise Jesus, my life is redeemed and I'm living in the glory of that risen Lord. Everything is fantastic. And you know that there's some people in the church who that is the response. But there are also people who will respond at the other end of the spectrum. And they will say, I stubbed my toe this morning and I'm feeling the great burden of of sin upon my life and the victimisation by Satan. I'm feeling attack. I need prayer about my stubbed toe because I'm under attack. And everything that goes on in their life is some great spiritual challenge that's going on. Now, the reality is most of us actually live somewhere on the spectrum between the two. Actually, yes, we are. We all do live with a great joy of... Christ's redemption and the joy that that brings us, but we also deal with a whole range of things that go on in our life. And sometimes the reason you stubbed your toe is because you should have been wearing shoes, not because you're under attack from Satan. But we have to be very careful as part of developing our emotionally healthy spirituality that we understand how to properly deal with what is going on in our life and what has gone on in our life previously and how that then manifests into our life going forward. We, uh, when we think about our yesterdays and when we think about how our lives have been shaped, generally they're shaped by three key things. They're the thing, number one, things that we have failed at. We all know that we've failed at something and I can put my hand up and say I've failed quite a bit. The University of Melbourne has a very strong record of my abject failures in a whole range of subjects, but we have all failed in different ways. We've all fallen short at different points. But each of us have also had to deal with unexpected outcomes. We all at different points in our lives have ideas about what our life will be like and how it will shape up, how it will evolve, what, it will, what we'll achieve, what we'll do, who we'll marry, who we'll be with, how many kids we'll have. But our lives are also shaped not just by our own failings, they're also shaped by circumstance. Sometimes things just don't pan out the way we thought they were going to. And thirdly, our life is shaped not just by our own failings or just by circumstance. Sometimes, sadly, our life is shaped by the sins of others and how they manifest then in our lives. Knowing how to engage with each of those issues is critical. So when we talk about circumstance, what do I mean by that? That's, that's the, mar- the young married couple who had planned on having children and they, when they got married and when they shared their vows, had in their mind a world and a life that was mapped out. They could see what it was going to like and they were unable to have children. It's the family whose house was burnt down in the bushfires and all of their memories and all of their history and, and the house that had been hand-built by the, the couple has gone. It's a person who was just in a car accident and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
It's a person who found out they had a congenital condition that they didn't know existed and suddenly had a stroke. It's the family whose six-year-old died of leukaemia for no apparent... For they, no idea where the leukaemia came from and the six-year-old died at a point where they never imagined it was going to happen. We all know and we have all experienced in our lives circumstance and how it can impact us. We can't do anything about it because it is, by definition, circumstance. It's something that's happened. But understanding how to respond to that is critical to our understanding of emotionally, spiritual, uh, spiritually healthy, oh. <laughs> emotionally healthy spirituality. <laughs> I wrote this sermon series. <laughs> You'd think that I, uh, I would have got that worked out. But circumstance can drive a lot of what goes on in our lives. But falling short is something that we all carry personally. For circumstance, we can, as hard as it is, you can, you can occasionally deal with it just by saying, look, I wasn't in control, so it's not something that anchors me, however disappointing it may be. But falling short becomes very personal because you know that cost. You know what it is that you did wrong and you know what it is that it could have been had you, had you not fallen short in that way. One of the great joys of reading the Bible and the great value of the Bible to us is that it was not written as by a bunch of people who just wanted to make history look pleasant. The fantastic part about the Bible is it is full of people who continue to screw up over and over again. And we don't take joy in the fact that they screw it up. We take joy in the fact that the Bible is full of humans and yet in their humanness, God calls them to do great things and calls them to be part of his family. And that means and gives us a great reassurance that those, those people who have failed are people just like us and it brings us closer to understanding our relationship with God. And I'm going to share two examples of those, Moses and Peter, two significant people in the development and understanding of, of the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They shaped the world in which we live. Exodus 2 verse 11. This is Moses very early on in his life. He's still a relatively young man. Many years later when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure that no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Now this is the man who is going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He's going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to bring forth the entire future of Israel. He didn't kill the man in, in a fit of rage. It wasn't an accident. He didn't accidentally back a donkey into the, the man when he was driving a plough or something. This was cold and calculated. He looked around to make sure that no one was looking. Having killed the man, he dug a hole and he buried him. Moses knew exactly 
what he was doing. In Exodus 3, verse 9, we have Moses standing in front of the burning bush. And God is speaking to him. God says to Moses, Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? When Moses is saying, Who am I? He knows what he's really saying is, who am I? I'm a murderer. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. God, why are you asking me to go out and lead the Israelites, your people, out of this nation? Moses' fundamental expectation of what his life was was ultimately different to reality and, and he moved through past failure, focusing on the needs of people and fulfilling God's plan. Moses' yesterday must have looked pretty bleak at the point where he knew what he'd done, where he'd killed that person, where he'd killed that Egyptian. His yesterday would have seemed like a pretty significant anchor to the future of his life and yet his tomorrow is being framed by a direct mandate from God to go and to bring his people out of Egypt. It's pretty daunting when you think about that level of forgiveness and redemption that, that his yesterday, that any of us would understand was something that would never allow him to proceed into the future yet he was able to do so. The same is true for Peter. Simon Peter, the man who Jesus described as the rock on which the church will be based. He had some significant burdens in his life, some significant challenges in his yesterdays. Matthew 16, verse 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. So this is the bloke who Jesus met on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and said, come follow me. Peter's thrown down his nets, turned around, started following him, said, Peter, or Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to build a church upon you. You will be the rock. And now Jesus is telling him that you are as good as Satan to me. Like you clearly can't feel very good if you're Peter at that point. It's pretty hard to come back from that level of damning by the person that you've loved, the person whom you have sought to follow and sought to believe that he is the Messiah. And this occurs shortly after Peter had already failed once where Jesus walked on water and Peter called out to him and said, Jesus, tell me to come and I'll come because I have faith and I believe in you. And he came, but he looked around part way out and started to sink and demonstrating to Jesus once more that Peter's, wor Peter's words, although well-meant and heartfelt, ultimately not up to the job of maintaining the faith that he needed to be able to walk out to Jesus. He'd failed Jesus again. Matthew 
Matthew 26, verse 40. We find that Jesus has gone on the night before he dies and he's taken James and John and he's asked them to stand away from the disciples and to stand with him while he prays. An urgent prayer to his father and Jesus is on his knees weeping. And he asked his three disciples to do one thing. It was just to sit there and stay awake for a little while. And Peter, when Jesus turned back to him, he returned to the disciples and found them in his sleep. And he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? I used to work a lot of night shift and work a lot of hours in the factory. And so I'd be up very early and get home and be pretty weary And I discovered that there are times in your life where you start having a conversation with someone or someone who you love, maybe in the bed next to you is having a conversation with you and one eye starts to feel a little bit droopy and then the other eye starts to feel a little bit droopy. And then you get to that extremely awkward point where you are absolutely convinced that you've been conscious through the entire conversation and you hear those words that will put a chill through any man's heart. Did you hear what I said? (laughs) At which point you have two responses. There's only two responses that are available to you. One is a straight flight to the truth. No, I'm sorry, I was falling asleep. It's been a long day. I'm really, I'm really sorry. It's not that I'm not interested. I really want to hear about it. Can we, can we take some time to really talk about this? And I, please forgive me. The other option is to go, yes, knowing that very shortly thereafter, you're going to be followed up with another question, which is, so what did I say? <laughs> now, at this point, you have a further choice. You can either then apologise again and say, oh, sorry, actually, I didn't hear you and admit failure, which is, which is worse than having admitted failure the first time, but it's better than taking the other choice because the other choice is to guess. <laughs> and I can assure you that whatever you think it was, it's not that. And at that point in time, you had one job, and it was to stay awake. And I know the burden that you then carry when you realise you've just fallen asleep while your dearly beloved is sharing something that's important to you. I can only then imagine how Peter must have felt, knowing already that he's failed Jesus on several times, on several occasions, and he then hears those words of Jesus, which must have... I can imagine Jesus is saying to him, I only asked you to do one thing, just to sit for an hour, just one hour, and you couldn't even do that. I can imagine Jesus would not even have been angry. It would have been disappointed. Who knows that the worst thing that happens when a parent tells you is not a parent yelling at you for doing something that's wrong. It's when a parent looks at you and goes, I'm just so disappointed in you. You can imagine that burden that Peter must have carried at that point. In Matthew 26, 74, Peter swore 
to a person who was near him and asked a question. A curse on me if I'm lying. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. In verse 75, it goes on and says, suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the, Peter's, the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And he went away and weeping bitterly. I can only imagine that devastating feeling that must have sat upon Peter as he heard that mournful crow as the sun is just rising over Jerusalem, the bustle of the city hasn't quite started yet. And just to hear that rooster, that very singular frequency, pierce his heart because he knew at that point exactly what had occurred. Peter had failed, and he'd failed greatly. And that bitterness that he wept was the bitterness of someone who, knew, who knows that yesterday has just got a lot darker and tomorrow is going to get a lot harder to recover from. And yet, and yet, the entire course of human history, literally billions of people, go to church on a Sunday or go in meet in small groups or call out to Jesus' name because Peter and other disciples rose above their yesterday and were able to build the church and Peter was able to ultimately fulfil his mandate to be the rock upon which the church was built. As Moses, generations before him had done, had been able to rise above his yesterday and to create and to, to facilitate the rising of the nation of Israel, Peter had been able to rise above that deep bitterness and that deep fear over what his future would be because of his own failings to then bring forth the greatest religious movement that this world has ever seen, to bring forth generations of people whose lives are saved because of their relationship with Jesus. What a remarkable example for us all that there is some way of coming beyond that. Now, at no point does Peter's past ever get forgotten. It doesn't go away. And I can only imagine that until the day he died, dawn would be a terrifying time for him. Because in those few short minutes as the Twilight, that early morning light is coming on and the roosters start to move around, he would hear a sound that every single day would remind him of the day that he failed his Lord and Saviour. The past doesn't get erased and Jesus' past, or Christ, or Peter's past was never erased. The redemption that came from Jesus was that his future would not be defined by that. And so I've seen examples of people whose circumstance have resulted in their yesterdays influencing their tomorrows. We've seen examples in Peter and Moses of failures where they had personally failed or fallen short or sinned and seen how that influences their future. But what about those people 
whom have been sinned against. How does that play out in their lives? I used to work at Ford, and some of you know this story. So we, Rachel and I had moved up here in 2004, uh, and then we're here for 18 months, and we went back to Melbourne, not because we didn't want to be here. In fact, quite the opposite. We felt very strongly that this was where we are going to end up, but we were feeling very strongly called to go back to Melbourne. At the time, we didn't fully appreciate why, but we just knew that that was where we needed to be for a season. And we went back, and we went to... We were based... Um, We'd been previously based at the factory in Geelong and I'd moved to work in the factory in Broadmeadows and we were sort of settling in to try and work out what this is all about. We knew that my, one of the reasons for coming back was that my grandmother had been getting progressively more ill while we were away and we wanted to spend time with her but also with my dad and his brothers and sisters because we knew that her passing would be a challenging time for them and so we wanted to be around for the family. And so my grandmother died in 2006 and we were able to be there for that. Um, we'd had a slightly fraught relationship with my grandmother um, when Rachel and I first got married and she felt that we shouldn't have been getting married as young as we were uh, and, and frankly made life difficult for Rach for a while. Um, but it ended up having a great redemption in that relationship once we moved up here and she had the joy of, she was a painter and used to paint a lot of the photos that Rach painted. Nana's very last words to me after years of really struggling to have a relationship with Rach, her very last words to me was, shut up Lyndon, I'm talking to Rachel, uh, which are words that I will treasure for a long, long time. But we knew, we knew that we needed to be back there. And so Nana had died. And at that point, my dad was living overseas and he'd been overseas for about 10 years. Um, working, living in Korea. He'd live, he was living in Seoul. He was there for three weeks and he'd be home for a week flying for a Korea, Korean Airlines as a Boeing 777 pilot. And we'd stayed with him a few times and we knew that, that it had been a long 10 years. And we knew that the, the flying was really starting to place a very great strain on his body, that he was getting tighter and tighter and that he was finding it harder to recover went from the, the long international flights he was also the Vice President of Safety within, within Korean Airlines, which meant that he was both flying and working another job. And he, we, we found him at times when we were staying with him, sort of drinking extremely large amounts of coffee to be able to get through and then having got through a flight or got through whatever it had to do, then having to drink alcohol to be able to get himself to sleep. And it was affecting his health and there was this sense that he was burdened by something. But we had no idea what it was other than it just being, it's just life, it's stress, it's, it's the work that he was doing. But one day when I was at Broadmeadows, I got a phone call from Dad and I knew that he was flying in on that particular day and he'd asked to meet up at lunchtime and I had a half an hour lunch break and when the, the sirens go, the, the lines stop and we could get out. And I said, sure, look, I'll meet you across the road and we'll grab some lunch. And it was a little odd that he was asking me to do this, but it seemed important enough that I go, uh, and the way it was, seemed urgent enough that I go to speak to him. So we went across the road, and Broadmeadows is not the most lubricous part of Melbourne, if any of you have spent time there. Uh, it is a manu what was a manufacturing area. And across the road from the Broadmeadows manufacturing plant was La Porchetta, Australia's contribution to Italian cuisine, a fine dining restaurant if there ever there was one but it was the nearest place that wasn't a McDonald's. So we went across the road and sat down and we, I can't remember what it was that we ordered. Dad ordered um, two glasses of red, uh, of house red, 
House Red from Lark Porchetta is not a great uh, wine if one must drink red wine. Um, it is not good at all. Uh, I think they're also selling it as vats to uh, do cleaning or something with as well. It was, it was pretty ordinary. And, but Dad got it and I was like, Dad, I'm, I'm working. I've got to get back on the lines. But it was apparent that something was up. And he drank the first glass and then he sat down and he started to tell me a story. My dad's dad, my grandfather, was a boy from the WA Wheatbelt. He's a mechanic and he'd moved over to Melbourne to join the RAAF at the start of World War II and then became a bomber, a bomber pilot in the UK flying Lancasters. And after the war, he, he came back and set up a mechanic shop and then he set up a service station. But he also had a, always had a very great reverence for the Air Force and for the Defence Forces generally. He... he set up a service station down at Point Cook, near the Point Cook Air Force Base and the Laverton Air Force Base. And there's photos of my dad sitting in an old Mustang aircraft that my grandfather had recovered, and dad would sit in there for hours watching the planes take off from Laverton Air Force Base, and it gave him that, the motivation to become a pilot. But because of the great reverence for the Defence Force, my grandfather was particularly proud Oh, he wanted all of the four kids to have music as part of their lives. And he was particularly proud when he was able to secure for Dad the opportunity to get lessons in playing trumpet and cornet by an officer in the Air Force Band who said that he would, he'd be happy to provide tuition to, to Dad. And my grandfather was very, very pleased with this, as was my grandmother. The officer was an expert teacher. As it turned out, he was an expert teacher and he was an expert groomer. He made Dad feel included in a way that he'd not felt with other adults and ultimately sexually abused my father for many years in the early 1960s. And the lessons came to an end when Dad had joined his high school's band and orchestra and he received alternative tuition. But the sporadic abuse continued to occur on social occasions for another year or so. Decades later, Dad's mum, my nana, gave him a letter that the officer had written to her saying how proud he was of Dad and that it was time for John to move on. Dad gave, um, Nana gave Dad the memento with pride because the thought that the Defence Forces would harbour child molesters was, some, was the furthest thing from her mind, something that she could not comprehend. And ultimately, to protect his mother, Dad held this secret until after she died. Nana would never have been able to deal with the consequence of the fact that something that she felt so, such great reverence for in the Air Force could have harboured something so evil. And this is the story I was told at the La Porchetta and we had never known. I was the only the second person in the family that Dad had told. He'd only told Mum a short time beforehand and Dad had held this to himself for 50 years, never uttering a word of it. It was a light bulb moment for so many of us in the family. So myself, I'm the eldest of four. And as we talked about it amongst my sisters and my brother, 
It was a moment where so many things made sense. My brothers and sisters don't have as strong a memory of it, but I remember when my parents nearly split up. It was a horrid time. And there was some great anguish going on in mum and dad's life and they were fortunate they were able to hold together, but largely through great effort from my mum. It was becoming apparent some of the rage that we used to see in dad. Now, we never saw that rage imposed upon us, but I definitely saw it imposed upon, upon some of the farm implements that we had around the property. I definitely saw some sledgehammers being thrown at things from time to time that probably shouldn't have been thrown. Something small that you and I would have just been frustrated about, yet it exploded in dad and you'd see him out there cursing and you two-bit, four-flushing, double-crossing, son of an up-jump, camel-trading, running, child-slave-rearing. It would go on. And there was a rage there that we didn't understand. But there was also a protection that we had never quite understood. We'd always grown up in the church. We knew that mum and dad had had a strong faith and their faith, mum's faith had kept the two of them going through for so long and that dad had rebuilt his faith and that was a significant part of our lives but it was also part of our, our upbringing in, in the scout movement. Dad became a scout leader, became the group leader and he, so he oversaw the cubs and the scouts and the ventures and the rovers. And two things always stuck out to me about how he engaged with it. One was that the scout movement is notionally faith-based. It has an origin within, with a Christian heritage. And so the scout law and promise references God. And Dad always felt very convicted to make sure that that was explicit, that it wasn't ever washed down, that there was a statement. And years later, you look back and you go, I know why he was saying that, because he wanted it to make sure it was real. But the other thing is we realised that there were times where leaders had volunteered and he'd pushed back on them. And we realise now that he had a lens that the rest of us don't have. He has the lens of, it, of the abused because the abused knows what the abuser sounds like and looks like. And he could weed stuff out. Even people who may not have ever ended up that way, he was so protective of all of us, both the kids in the family, but the whole scout group around making sure that he had insight as to who was looking after the kids. That light bulb went on and we realised exactly what it was that he'd been dealing with for so many years. We also realised the great cost that that had been, or the great cost of being born by mum over all that period, that she had been fighting something that she didn't know existed. She'd been battling an evil that hadn't been named and was not even identified, yet it was existent all the way through. And it need never have been like this, and it should never have been like this. And on the 15th of December 2017, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse presented its final report to the Governor-General detailing the culmination of five-year inquiry into institutional responses to child sexual abuse and related matters. One of the defining characteristics of government over the last decade, whatever other failures may have been or could be hurled against various different prime ministers, the fact that we had that is a remarkable thing. And Dad's voice was one of thousands that were able to be recorded.
literally thousands of voices and thousands of stories were incorporated in there. But as much as they were incorporated, for many it was far too late. There was for many, their story was ultimately not able to be recorded in their words. I've spoken to Dad a lot about this over the last little while and he, he speaks of how lucky he was that he was able to survive to the point that he was, that he did, and that he was able to express it in the way that he had the opportunity. And so he shared to the Royal Commission, and I'm going to quote a portion of the, his story in the Royal Commission, and this is recorded it's on the National Archives and it will be there as part of a permanent stamp upon Australia's history, as so many other stories are. And this is what the commissioners recorded Dad saying to them. However, the fact that you've survived doesn't cancel out what has happened. And the commissioner noted, while outwardly successful, he has had to see psychologists for marital problems he experienced in his early 30s and for anxiety and severe depression. Dad went on, I had no real idea what a normal hours piece is, he said. A lot of my career has been wonderful, but there's barely been a conscious hour in my life where I felt peace for the whole hour. Not necessarily just thinking about this, but the unsettling effect in every way, shape and form. That Air Force officer committed suicide some decades ago when it became apparent to him that the net was closing in. And Dad only found out afterwards that he was not the only one. And he'd lived a life believing that what had occurred to him was, was something that somehow he deserved or somehow that was what his job was and he just had to endure it. The cost to Dad of that man's failings are almost incalculable. The cost to my mum of that man's failings are almost incalculable. Dad was saying the other day that it was one of the great fortunes of his life that shortly after this had occurred, an Air Force chaplain had approached him and some other young men and asked them whether they'd like to join a Bible study. And that chaplain ended up taking Dad to see Billy Graham at the MCG. And Dad walked forward and made the first tentative faith, steps to his faith at that time. And that faith and the faith of my mum, that little thing that said you're worth something, held him through for 50 years. He could so easily have fallen, as indeed so many people did. My tomorrows could have been permanently stained by his yesterday. And yet somehow through that time, he was able to find just enough strength to be able to keep going on. That great silence... The great silence that exists around so much anguish and pain and abuse that occurs in our world, that great silence nearly cost him and our family everything. 
But I can stand here today with absolute certainty. The only reason I can stand here today with three wonderful children, mostly wonderful, depending on the day, three lovely children who grow up in a family where their mum and dad love each other, we have a great life, that we have the opportunity to be part of a family where we are part of a church family. So much of my life occurred despite what had, what had happened and it needn't have been like that. So many other people were not that fortunate. My kids, and I hope their kids and their kids will carry the blessing of the perseverance and endurance of my father and my mother through that time. And dad speaks often now that he's only able to speak about it and I speak about openly in a way that he couldn't for so many years. But in doing so, he's able to give full acknowledgement to the great redemptive power of Christ and know that however much those incidences so many years ago have fundamentally formed and shaped who he is, it can only inform his identity, but it not, does not define it. And in the same way as Peter and Moses were informed by their failings, they were ultimately their future, their success, what they were able to achieve was never defined. It was never forgotten. Absolutely, it was informed, but it was never defined. And in sharing this to you today, I'm not sharing it just to try as a motivational speech. I'm sharing it with you because this is a declaration that we have to be able to make as a church. To have emotionally healthy spirituality means that we must be able to talk about these things. We must be able to talk and share about our lives in a real way without wallowing in them, without being held back by them, but acknowledging the impact that it's had, but then looking towards the future and the great joy and promise that we have in that. And we need to do that because that is what's promised in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. He gives power to the weak and he gives strength to the powerless. Even youths will be weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But for those who trust in the Lord will find new strength and they will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not faint, because that is the promise of our good Lord, made thousands of years ago and promised and honoured over generations since. Peter, uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has to become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Whether you are the couple that couldn't have children when you planned, whether you're the family that had a child die or a family member die when you didn't expect it, whether circumstances have played out differently to what you had anticipated, 
whether you're here today like Moses and Peter, having knowing that you've fallen short, that you bear the pain of knowing that you've done something that Jesus would look at and say, I'm disappointed. Or maybe you're the person here today who has been sinned against in the most horrible of ways and for whom you have assumed that your future will be defined for all times by what it is that someone else has done to you. I can say to you, because I've experienced it. I can say to you because I've witnessed it and I can say to you because I'm only here because of this. That redemption through Christ's sacrifice means that each of you, every one of you, have the privilege to only ever be informed by your past and not defined by it. Whatever occurred yesterday, the promise that we have in the Bible is that we are here for three reasons. The first of which is you are here because you were created to be relation, in relationship with God. That whatever is going on, God wants to speak to you through His Son, Jesus. However dark and deep the pit of yesterday looks and seems, God wants to be in relationship with you personally, with the person who you are. But more than that, He wants you to be part of His family because He wants to have a relationship with you, but He wants Him to know that you are part of a family that loves you, that holds you dear, that brings you together. And you are, your purpose is to help grow that family because having come into relationship with God and having become part of the family, you realise the great promise that is in Christ's name. And we then have that heart for those people whose yesterday is the great anchor on their tomorrow. And I don't know those people's names, but they are out there like those thousands that went to the Royal Commission, those people who took their lives, the people who failed for whatever reason and then felt that they were never worthy of anything else. There are people out there who are hurt and burdened and held down by their yesterday. And the promise of God is that that is not what He wants for them. Our past will always exist. It will always, however messy, dirty, unpleasant, unexpected, undesirable it is, our past will always be a foundation for our future. But it's through Christ that we can be sure that it is only ever a foundation upon which we can stand rather than a structure which encloses our future hope. Can I ask you to all stand please? We're going to pray together because praying together as a family is one of the privileges that we have of coming together. And then we're going to sing. And we're going to sing to our good Lord and to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
But first of all, I'd like you to bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come here today. We thank You for the opportunity to be in Your house and to be with Your family. We thank You for Your promise that our past will not anchor our future when we are redeemed in Christ's name. Lord, I thank You that we, that my family has been able to be blessed as a result of the perseverance and the endurance of two people who held on to Your promise through all of those years who maybe it's the first time you, you've been to church or the first time in a long time or maybe you're just feeling a little prick that there's something in, in your gut that is just saying I need to be able to move beyond my yesterday I just want you to raise your hand in surrender it doesn't, doesn't change anything it's not some magical symbol but it's a moment of being able to stand in this in this family while everyone's head's bowed, no one else is looking, where you get to be able to say, Lord, release me from my yesterday. Thank you, I can see those hands. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for those people who put their hand today in surrender and are calling to you, Lord, that, that you are able to provide that comfort. That, Lord, I thank you for each and every person who is here today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.